Welcome to another episode of the How To Business Show. Our guest today is Elijah Brown. Elijah is a multifamily real estate investor, army officer, and co-founder of Goldhawk Capital based in Phoenix, Arizona. In 2016, he had no job, no savings, and student debt. Fast forward to today, only seven years later, he has a real estate portfolio of over 850 units valued at more than $100 million. The best part, he works for himself. Listen in to learn how Elijah was able to build such a massive portfolio spanning across six states all on his own. Without further ado, let's hop into the episode. Thank you for uh, coming on the How To Business Show, Elijah. We're, I've been scrolling through LinkedIn. I'm always impressed by your content and wanted to have you on to you know share with our listeners what it is that you do and how you got there. You have a fairly interesting story. So um, I guess without further ado, just tell us about what you're doing now and kind of how you got there. Some of the key highlights that you believe um, contributed to your story and getting you to where you are today. I appreciate it, Dylan, and thank you guys for having me on. Um, what I'm doing right now, I'm uh, creating content on LinkedIn. It feels like that's my full-time job right now, um, although that is not what my uh, my main skill set is. So um, my story is that I started buying single-family rental properties in college. Um, I got together with my best friend and my cousin, and we went out and bought a, a crappy little single family house in Orlando, Florida, and we put a tenant in it. And uh, that was a great process. And I loved it. Um, a lot of uh, roadblocks, but we got through them. And then we did it a few more times. So I did that four times. And then I ended up getting a job right out of college at a, uh, at a real estate investment trust. So these are like large, like mega corporations that own a whole bunch of real estate and then they allow the I guess the public to like buy shares in it um, and it's a very tax efficient structure um, but I worked there for about four years learning underwriting um, specifically in the seniors housing uh, class and then also medical office buildings um, so I did a lot of uh, work with uh, you know asset management leasing underwriting uh, kind of wore a lot of different hats in those roles and got a good solid foundation of how to look at cash flows and deal analysis. Um, and then while I was there on nights and weekends, um, I spent all of my available free time uh, looking for my own deals, specifically in uh, value add multifamily, small value add multifamily. So I would spend my nights and weekends uh, sourcing deals, underwriting, uh, raising capital from friends and family and trying to go after bigger and bigger properties. And at this point now I've been doing it for seven years. I no longer work uh, for the REIT and uh, the portfolio. Uh, it's composed of both uh, GP and LP interest. And for those who don't know what that is, um, GP general partner just means I'm actively the manager of the deal. Um, you know, I'm the one calling the shots and raising the money and uh, you know managing the actual property. Whereas an LP investment um, is just passive. It's like me uh, investing money in somebody else's fund or their deal and just uh, collecting my check. So I have a combination of, of both and it totals about 870 units now um, with property value a little over 150 million and looking to uh, to grow that portfolio both the uh, on the active and the passive side. That's awesome. And is that all managed by Goldhawk Capital or do you have a couple companies that, that do that? 
So I, it's been called different things at different times. Um, you know, I, when I started off, it was just me. Um, but, you know, it's been my track record the whole time. And, you know, I've partnered with other people throughout the years. And we've, you know, named the business different things. But I'd say it all, you know, now it all rolls up to Goldhawk Capital as being the brand. Um, you know, it's my image and my track record that, you know, I'm, I'm pitching to investors. Um, and so, you know, it's Goldhawk Capital. But Goldhawk Capital capital right now is primarily focused on value add properties in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, our strategy is, uh, you know, looking for, um, you know, 100 plus unit buildings uh, that are, you know, 1980s and above that are in need of some renovations in a great area. So that's like what we're focused on right now. That is Goldhawk Capital's, you know, goal. And, uh, you know, all of the other deals that I've done across the country and in, in different types of buildings, um, I'd say support that, uh, that business venture. And when you say across the country, how many states are, are you, do you own property in? Six. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it started off in Florida. So that those first single family homes were in Orlando. Um, then I bought six packs in Orlando. And then after that, I got my first multifamily in Arizona. Um, but then I actually came in as a co-GP, so like a, a co-manager on a deal in Colorado. And then I did another two in Vermont. Uh, and those are portfolio deals. And then I acquired some LP, so passive investor interest in a deal in Georgia. Um, and actually... Just a few months ago, I got into a deal in uh, Atlanta, um, and now uh, I had a deal in California, but I got rid of it because um, I don't like to be in California. So um, now it's six states. Yeah, that that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So going back to the beginning, Elijah, uh, that first deal, how did that come about? Were you always interested in real estate? Were you and your boys just sitting around and like, hey, let's do something? Or kind of how did that happen when you guys were sitting around in college? No, I thought I was going to be a, a hedge fund manager and I was going for the uh, investment banking track. Um, you know, I went to, did my undergrad at University of Southern California. I was going through the investment banking pipeline and I was fortunate enough to, to skip the investment banking and I got an internship at a hedge fund. And so I was doing, uh, you know, analysis there and I quickly realized that the uh, the secondary markets in that you know industry wasn't necessarily for me, um, you know it's very hectic and stressful and um, risky as well. And so um, you know late one night I was going down a YouTube rabbit hole and I discovered this whole rental property investing thing in real estate and I started watching channels uh, like I don't know Graham Stephan, Bigger Pockets, Chris Crone. Bill Pustajowski and a few others and just started watching a ton of videos and then reading books. And after a couple of weeks, I was really excited and decided um, I'm going to buy a rental property. So that's when I uh, decided to uh, start looking for small homes in Florida and uh, didn't have enough cash at all for the down payment. So I, I had to bring in um, I had to, I guess, what we call syndicate from day one, although it wasn't, you know, it was a JV just because we had three people involved. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So it's like so many people try to get into this real estate, the rentals, and they read books and they watch videos and then they just don't take action. 
I mean, it sounds yeah. like it took you a couple of weeks to decide, okay, I'm doing this. Have you always yeah. been an entrepreneur, a self-starter? Yeah. Um, analysis paralysis is real. At some point you just got to go out and do it. Um, you know, even if I had lost money on that first deal and I probably should have, I got lucky with a good market. Um, it would have been worth it even if I had lost money just cause I went out and did that first deal. Um, and that, you know, gave me the confidence to do everything else that I've done. So, um, you know, that's, I, usually if I see a good opportunity, I'll, I'll run at it really, really hard. Um, and you know, I've been to so many meetups and events, um, of, people like newbies who have never done it before and you know this is like their third year going to these events and they still won't pull the trigger because there's just something they're not sure about or on the fence about i don't know which market to get in or what happens if there's a recession and uh you know those are the if you're not willing to take the risk um then you know you won't get the reward yep yep, yep. everyone's looking for that certainty and it's just you're never going to yep. get it yeah. And I like that you mentioned that people are always concerned about markets and then just thinking about the fact that you have six different states. That's that's something I mean, most investors, they pick a market and they stay there and that becomes their home. What what early on got you into, you know, exploring other markets so soon? Was it I guess is that some do you want to be a national investor or are there any of those markets you're in that you're wanting to focus on? I guess that might be Phoenix. Yeah, the reason why I went out of state is because I was living in California um, and property values were so high um, and, you know, it just didn't make any sense to, to invest there. I wouldn't be able to get in. Um, and so I started looking out of state from day one. I actually paid a, um, you know, a, a consulting firm some money um, to help me choose a location uh, to buy property in. And I won't go into all the details about that, but essentially, you know, they, they got a small fee and they essentially held my hand and walked me through the process of choosing a location and, uh, you know, connecting me with, a, with brokers in that market. Um, and so it, what I would actually recommend for people is to, when they're getting started, when you're getting started, just pick one specific market, one asset class, one strategy, and just do that and get really good at it and do it over and over and over again. Um, something that, uh, you know, rich dad, poor dad teaches, it's like, you got to make, a bag first, you know, you gotta, you gotta accumulate a significant amount of capital before you can really passively invest it, um, you know, in the, in the right way that's going to generate you enough cash flow to replace your expenses. And so, um, and Brandon Turner teaches this too. It's like start some type of business or side hustle or, or real estate or whatever you want to do and focus so intensely on it and be really good at it, be the expert and make a bunch of money just focusing. Don't worry about diversification, you know, get to your first hundred thousand and your first million. And I would say even your first, you know, two to three million before you start thinking, okay, I'm going to now, um, you know, put some money in different ETFs and in different businesses and in different asset classes and stuff. Um, because that stuff might be a distraction to you. So, um, yeah. So how long were you on the, the single family game before you made the leap into commercial? Um, what did that look like? A couple of years. So in 2017, I bought the first one. It took me a whole year to get the second one. Um, and then the next year after that, I bought uh, three. And when you, you mentioned you liked value add, are you, do you have, are you a carpenter or anything? Do you do the work yourself or do you just have some good connections with contractors? No, I've actually never uh, done renovation work myself, um, and I have never managed property or met 
know, any of the tenants myself. Um, from day one, I knew that in order to actually grow and scale the business, I cannot be working in the business. I cannot be in one location doing a task, answering calls in the middle of the night for toilets, dealing with tenants. Um, so I hired property management and I paid the fees and I hired contractors and paid their high prices the entire way. Um, so that's, yeah, I'm not interested in doing any of those jobs. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And it definitely makes you a more efficient investor when you're not also the boots on the ground guy. I appreciate you saying that. I think a, a lot of people, they get hung up on, okay, I'm going to buy this single family house. I'm going to do all the renovations myself. And then they realize, oh, eight months into the deal, they're not even halfway done with their own renovations and they're starting to lose money. So I think that's some great advice for our listeners. Just suck it up and pay the high prices so that you can go and chase more and more deals. And I might add, um, you know, just because you hire a property manager and a contractor um, does not mean it's going to become a passive investment. Actually, it's like still the most active thing ever. Like owning a rental property, even with all the team members and the help, is a lot of effort and a lot of work. Like I'm not sitting on the beach all day, every day, um, even though I'd like to be. What is passive is investing as a limited partner into a syndication or a fund, and you're going to give up you know, you know, probably half of your profits um, to that manager for managing the deal, but it'll be completely passive. So it's a total trade-off. Uh, it allows you to buy back your time and essentially focus on what you want to do, but you won't make as much money. Yeah. And I, I think the main difference that might help the listeners is an LP doesn't really have much say or, you know, decision-making um, control, but when you're the GP, all of that's on you. And so you obviously when you're saying it, it is very active, that's because you're having to make a bunch of decisions that no one else can make for you. And, um, I like to think that there's three things you can't avoid in life. That's constant work, pain and uncertainty. And as long as you can get comfortable with those three things, you'll be pretty happy. And it sounds like you're perfectly comfortable with all those things. You know, it's, I'm not comfortable with those things and that's why I'm working so hard to be free of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but they always come back. And, uh, I, yes. I thought it was interesting. You, you were in the, you were in the army. How, how is, how did that experience affect your career? I think that I could see that being extremely beneficial, maybe negative. What, what's your out, what's your outlook on that? No, overall definitely positive. And for the number one reason that I got to go to the University of Southern California, which is like a $400,000 school for free. Um, I graduated with no debt. I even got stipends uh, from the, the ROTC program that allowed me to graduate with cash in my bank account and a couple of rental properties. Um, and so that was like the number one thing. You know, I was a couple of years out of college um, with a million dollar net worth. You know, it's, it's uh, most people my age have, you know, $30,000, $50,000 in student debt. And, you know, the military is a great way to completely avoid that. Um, and then, you know, my commitment, I went straight into the reserves. And for those who don't know, it's a one weekend per month commitment. It's, um, and it's not always every single week, every single month. And so, you know, when I show up, I get paid, but it's, it's just part time. I don't, it's not a major commitment. And um, so it's, it's definitely was totally worth the money um, that I got so early in my life uh, to complete college. The other thing is the, um, you know, the character traits that you acquire um, through training programs. So, um, you know, for example, um, you know, being able to 
make quick decisions when you're under a lot of pressure and stress, you know, and real estate's a good example of that, you know, you do your underwriting and you plan for every possible scenario in the worst case. Um, and as soon as you close escrow, nothing is, is like the underwriting. And it's the same in, in any business. There's just constantly crap going on in emergencies and fire drills every single day. And, um, you know, going through military, military training has desensitized me to stressful or bad situations. And so when those pop up, I'm able to make quick decisions and, and move on from them and not be as emotional. So that's, you know, the number one thing The the other thing I'd say that I, that I learned from the military is the importance of a strong team. So have either of you guys watched undercover billionaire yet? I've, I've seen an episode or two. Okay. It's on like I think it's on Discovery's uh, network, but the whole premise of the show is that they take like a very wealthy person, successful person, and they drop them in uh, you know a poor town in the middle of nowhere in America with a hundred bucks and an old truck, and they're not allowed to use any of the resources or connections that they had in their previous life, and they have ninety days to create a million dollar business. And the cameras follow them all around. It's like the most in incredible thing because it's so like real and raw and, and teaches, it just teaches you everything you need to know about how to like focus and become successful with such limited like resources to begin with. And uh, the number one thing that I took away from that um, is the importance of uh, surrounding yourself with other people to get the work done and then, you know, motivating them to do, do the work and delegating. So in every single case, these entrepreneurs had, um, you know, they, they brought in community members, people just that they met on the streets or in different businesses in the community, and they brought them in and, and uh, motivated them and convinced them that there was this certain, you know, goal at the end and this dream and, you know, essentially motivated them to do all the work for them. Um, because when you're trying to build a million dollar business, you can't do it all yourself. I've done it all myself um, and it's exhausting and I burned out and it made my progress much slower. Now that I'm looking to outsource different things, um, you know, it's uh, going a lot faster and I'm able to accomplish a lot more. It's the same in the military. Like you can't just like roll into a village and like shoot everyone in the village and, and collect a high value target and, and extract by yourself. Like some people can do that, like James Bond, and, you know, but it really takes like a massive group effort. And this is for anything in the military and really in life. Um, you know, if you're looking to accomplish a mission or do something like great, like you can't do it yourself. You need the team members um, and, you know, you need to be able to delegate and trust and motivate them uh, to get the job done. So yeah, that's, that's it. Great. Yeah. Early on in your career, I mean, you started this, obviously, like you said, straight out of college, you had a million dollar net worth. So, I mean, that's an early start, I would say for most people. Did you have like a mentor early on that you were, you know, relying on to give you advice? I started off with just, you know, YouTube and books and then, you know, uh, listening to all the bigger pockets podcasts and trying to learn from, you know, everybody's mistakes and, and learn as much as I can. Um, it wasn't until really when I got to the job at the, the real estate investment trust that I met some folks who had been working in real estate that, you know, knew a little bit and could give me some advice on what I was doing. You know, specifically, I learned a lot about underwriting. Uh, I learned a lot about 
thinking about the way deals are structured and capital stack and, uh, you know, presenting to investors, you know, at this company, we had to prepare large analyses and like make decks and present them to investment committee committees and stuff. So I learned a lot about that um, through, you know, my, my leadership there. And then, um, you know, in more recent years with the, uh, you know, the, the multifamily syndication community, um, I've met a lot of people and they're, they're all so eager to, to help you, um, you know, to, it, you just have to reach out. Everybody's willing to offer advice. And so I've met a few um, folks in that, in this industry that have been instrumental. So, yeah. That's awesome. And having that background in financial analysis can be extremely helpful and in the real estate industry, especially when you're deal hunting, how do you go about finding your deals? Is it mostly off market, on market? Do you have a go-to real estate agent? Are you a real estate agent yourself? So I've got two main strategies. Um, so I do an active strategy where, you know, I'm going out and looking for the deals that I'm going to actively manage. And then I have what I call a uh, fund of funds, um, Fund of funds, also co-GP, where someone else is really putting the deal together. There's another sponsor, fund manager, syndicator um, who's going out and finding the deals. And then I'm jumping in on their deals and providing some sort of value, whether it's capital raising or you know, deal analysis or asset management. I'm providing some kind of value um, in exchange for an ownership in that deal. Um, and so it's two different ways. So for the active strategy, um, I use broker relationships. So I'm not physically, you know, always in my market. So I'm relying on relationships with the people who have their eyes and ears to the ground and who are constantly driving around and meeting people and, uh, you know, getting deals sent to them on a daily basis. And so those are, you know, the brokers in the market and they've got access to all the off-market listings, the on-market listings, the, the rumors about potential listings. Um, and so brokers are the way to go for me, um, for at least for my, my active strategy. And then for fund of funds um, and co-GP type of stuff where other people are putting deals together and I'm just allocating capital on those deals, I just rely on those managers to, to find the deals. Um, and then occasionally um, there's a third thing where, you know, I'll find a property myself off market, um, whether it's because I physically am seeing it or someone just sends it to me, um, like they're reaching out to me. And in which case, you know, that's another source of, of my deal flow. Awesome. You mentioned in the beginning of the pod that you seem like you're spending all your time on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm curious <laughs> as to like, why is that? Are you seeing some sort of ROI? Yeah. Are you sourcing deals? Or are you just trying to build the personal brand? Why are you spending so much time on LinkedIn? Yeah. So here's the progression of capital raising. You start with people around you that you know, friends and family. Um, you reach out to them and you expand that network and you try to get friends of friends and word of mouth referrals. Um, then at some point you exhaust those. Um, and so, you know, I came to the point uh, last year where I had exhausted my network of friends and family. You know, I've asked everyone I know to invest in one of my deals and they're at the point where it's like, I can't convince my, you know, my, my co-worker, my ex-co-worker um, to invest another $50,000 in a deal um, because they just don't have it. And so there comes a point where you have to actually do marketing and advertising to get retail investors or people who are, you know, just high net worth, uh, typically 
accredited and and i won't go into the whole details of that unless you you want but they have a certain amount of wealth and income that allows them per sec requirements to invest in deals and so you know i'm going out on linkedin and posting articles and polls and carousels and different content to try to engage with these people who may become future investors um and so that's that's the whole point of the marketing campaign and the, the the lead funnels and i you know i just released a free my, my underwriting model that i built with a video tutorial i released um you know an example of one of my deals and then i just wrote a book too um, and i I posted it to, uh, I made the link live today, but I'm going to actually, um, you know, create a post about it probably next week. So um, these specific products, uh, we call them in this world, digital knowledge products. It's a lead magnet. Essentially, you're providing some kind of tremendous value to people um, in exchange for, you know, them being in your network. So usually that comes in the form of an email address. So you get their email address and then you start sending them educational content like emails on a you know, weekly or a daily or a monthly basis, whatever you choose. And at some point, um, you know, you need to further the relationship by getting on the phone with them or, uh, you know, having some type of back and forth with them to actually like get to know them as an investor. And then, um, you know, once you've established that relationship with these people, um, then I feel comfortable enough to send them deals and say, Hey, would you, would you be interested in investing in this type of deal? Um, so that's, yeah, kind of the strategy. Um, and to do that, I need to be on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll definitely put a link to your page on LinkedIn, a link to the book. Appreciate definitely it. check them out everybody. But I wanted to ask you, can you kind of contrast what it's like working with your friends, your aunts, your uncles, your friends of friends money and being responsible for that to now just having investors, you know, lean on you. Yeah. Is there sort of dichotomy there? So it's, difficult working with friends and family money. Um, there is an increased burden of responsibility um, that you feel um, like when I, when I got that first multifamily building, I raised like $112,000 from 10 people. Um, you know, I, I got my friends to put in between five and like 15, $20,000 each. And that was their last you know, money in their bank account um, because these people were young and they're my friends. And um, I was like, just trust me. And, to have that level of responsibility with someone's last $5,000 is, is, uh, it like makes me, it made me sick. Like I, I was, I was like, I need to perform on this. This is like the most important thing ever. Um, and I still feel that way with people's money, but it's not as much as like a personal connection with it. It's like, I can kind of put the emotions of it aside and focus on the, you know, the deal. Um, and then the other aspect of it is that, um, Typically, people who are higher net worth, who have done deals before, who are accredited, um, they're much easier to manage because they understand they've done this before and they don't have a ton of questions. So a lot of times your most difficult investors will be, you know, the, the five to $25,000 investors because they just don't understand rightfully. So, um, you know, they've never done this type of thing before and they don't have a lot of money. So that $10,000 is like a huge deal to them. Whereas, you know, for most of my deals, I set my minimum at $50,000. And for the guy who can just put $50,000 in the real estate investment, you know, they, they probably got a million or two in the bank. And so it's, it's not as, um, as big of a deal to them where it's like, you know, if they lose that money, they're going to be like, you know, thinking about like, 
depression and suicide. It's not like that. So they tend to be, um, you know, much easier to manage. Would, is your investment base now mostly GPs or LPs? Um, no, LPs. Um, so definitely LPs, but still mostly friends and family. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I guess, do you have a situation where, you know, those first few early investors were they, did they continue to roll in their investments as you, yeah, that's awesome. So, so I did a really good job of, of managing the money and uh, the, the deals worked out well and, and we'll never know if it was because of the great market or because I was good at my job, but um, you know, the deals went well and usually when a deal goes well and someone gets, you know, three times what they thought they were going to get, they're going to say, let's do it again. Um, and also there's tax benefits involved. So in real estate, we have what's called a 1031 exchange. What that allows you to do is uh, indefinitely defer the tax that's owed on the, the, the gain on the sale um, of the investment uh, up, up above your basis. And so um, what you do is you sell the property and then if you can take that cash and reinvest it into a property that's equal or better in value, um, you know, you can essentially not pay the capital gains tax and keep deferring that tax forever. And on the day you die, it disappears. You, your, your inheritors get it at a stepped up basis. Yeah, that's awesome. And going back to, you mentioned you like the value add opportunities. Um, do you look for opportunity zone opportunity? Do you like the, those investment situations or do you stay away from them? I've done a few of those. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to limit my range of, of potential invest investments to just opportunity zones. And so I'm, I'm looking everywhere. Um, you know, opportunity zones, I think we're good. And I think they're being, you know, the, the, the benefit is less so, like it's being phased out. So it's not like a, a major part of the strategy. And, and the thing that's really held me up about it is that, and that a lot of people don't know, when you buy a property in an opportunity zone, you have to spend a significant amount of money, like a ton of CapEx and capital um, to even qualify, um, you know, for the tax benefits. So, and I, I don't know what that formula is, but it's something like if you, you know, spend a million dollars on a property, you probably got to spend a million dollars fixing it up too. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the formula is, but there's a significant investment that needs to be made to make that worth it. And my type of value add is, you know, more cosmetic. You know, I try not to, you know, rip out walls and redo electrical and plumbing. I, I've done that quite a few times, not really of my, of my choosing. Um, but sometimes like when you, you, you do demolition, you discover things, but, um, you know, the stuff I'm doing is not like, I'm not buying a property for 2 million and then spending 2 million, you know, I'm buying a property for 2 million and spending you know, 400,000. So yeah. it's uh, difficult. Yeah, when you're underwriting these deals, do you have any non-negotiables, things you have to see or you won't invest or you won't get involved? Yeah, so, and that comes, totally comes down to my investors and their risk tolerance. So, like, the most important things is, like, the, the IRR, which is essentially the, the annualized rate of return when you consider the, the compounding or the time value of the money. Um, said another way, it's, like, the discount rate at which all of the cash flows of the deal need to be discounted at to reach your starting investment. Um, and so that needs to be at a certain amount. Typically I'm looking for like a 15% IRR levered, um, which means like when debt is considered and then cash on cash. So what I've found recently is that deals, especially in my market have such low cash on cash. When you have cap rates that are low, which is another way of saying, 
prices are high. So like when property values are high and interest rates are also high, um, there's not a lot of cash flow at the end of the day. There's not a, like, once you pay the bank, there's like almost nothing left. Um, there's like three to 4% per year. Um, what that means is if you had invested a hundred thousand dollars, you're maybe getting three or $4,000 a year in cash flow, which is very low. I'd say that's bad. Um, and so I'm typically looking for a minimum of like five to 7%. And uh, it's funny, I recently polled the investors on LinkedIn and most of them said, uh, you know, I won't even look at your deal unless you get 8% or more. So now I'm kind of like rethinking, it's like maybe, maybe the strategy I'm working on needs to be adapted or changed or tweaked in some way to address the market. And I've been hesitant to do that because of my theory about niching down and being very deliberate and like specific in one market, one asset class. Um, but, you know, I think that type of thinking is in this situation is going to uh, limit my potential with, with uh, raising capital. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of leads into my next question. I was going to ask, you know, I'm not asking you for some sort of bold real estate 2023 prediction, but you seem like you're, your business is extremely systematized. How have you guys adapted or have you adapted at all to what feels like a market shift for 2023? We've slowed down a lot. Um, so we actually had a deal in November um, that we were excited to get and we had to back out of it because the debt got so bad that the deal economics no longer made sense. Um, and so we realized at that point that we need to slow down. And I think you're going to see a lot of blood in the water over the next six months. You've got a lot of new syndicators who took on two to three year bridge debt, but that means just a short term high interest loan, kind of like hard money. And those rate caps that they had, or even the loan terms itself are becoming due. Um, they're expiring and these people will need to sell and they'll probably be desperate to sell. And that is what lowers pricing because they're willing to sell it at whatever price gets them out and protects them. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot of um, people doing fire sales in the next six months, which creates a lot of opportunity uh, for buying. So I think we'll be um, a bit more active on the buying, uh, especially in the Phoenix market in the second half of the year. Um, and then, yeah, so that's uh, where we're slowing down, but also we're thinking about, you know, once these opportunities are available, you know, the other side of it is raising capital. Are my investors going to be willing to take the risk in a recession to, uh, you know, to, to put their, to invest their money with me? And for most of them, the answer is no. So it's like people are very scared right now. And so if I can't, if I find a great deal, that's great. But if I can't raise the capital, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I need to balance, you know, raising capital and finding the deals and match the two together to actually make a transaction happen. And so we're, uh, we're kind of uh, playing it by ear and seeing what the market market tells us. I know, I know sometimes uh, my, my grandfather, he's a big cash guy and he's always been excited around recessions. And I, I think some yeah. people, they get excited too, because it's kind of a, a shift in who's holding the bag apparent, uh, some, in some yeah. situations. Is, are you excited for the fire sale that's coming or are some of your properties, are you worried about them? How do you feel about that and how you're positioned? Uh, so I'm, I'm 
at one point worried um, because I do have properties that will go down in value. At the same time, I'm excited because there are opportunity to acquire properties at big discounts. So it's it's a combination of both. Um, I'd say it's it's interesting right now. Um, so what's really popular uh, among people who are buying is seller financing. If you're not familiar with that, it's when, you know, the, the seller of the property, um, you know, essentially lends you the money and becomes the bank. It's a, it's a carry back. Um, so the seller's holding the note. However, and that can be done at much lower interest rates. The problem with that is those types of people are less desperate to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have, uh, either they either they own the property outright, like they paid off their note, their mortgage on it, um, or they have very low leverage, and they're they're not desperate to sell, and so they're not going to give you a big discount. Um, you know, they want full price for the property because they're not desperate, and I don't want to pay full price right now, and I don't think anybody does. So you know, your options are to either pay full price and get a lower interest rate on a seller finance note. Or uh, to pay a lower price um, on, you know, a fire sale and then get agency financing at six and a half or seven percent, and uh, essentially, you know, get hosed on the on the cash flow. So it's it's um, either way, the cash flow is not good, and yeah. it's kind of a tricky situation to navigate. Definitely a catch twenty two. But uh, I mean, you've obviously been in the industry a lot longer than we have. But I've I've thought it it was interesting. I mean. A year or two ago, if you mentioned seller financing, people would be like, no, just get it from the bank. And then now seller financing is an option people are actually thinking about because they understand, I, I guess, smart owners understand that they're not going to be able to sell their property unless they are willing to do seller financing. It'll, it'll be interesting over the next year what how that plays out because you're, you're right. There are some people who've paid off their their properties in full. They could just sit on them for the next 10 years and, and they don't really care. And um, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because there's a ton of baby boomers wanting to retire, sitting on a ton of real estate, and they own it clear and outright. But as prices drop, are they going to try to sell or just keep the market frozen? Who knows? Um, yeah, I see a lot of people you know, react to the way the market is depending on their timeline, right? If you're planning on retiring here in the next year or two, you'd be very upset with what's going on. But with people like us, we're younger, we have longer timelines, like you said, we see it as opportunity. And I saw another podcast that you were on where you had said, you know, you're two big whys. Uh, one of the whys was your deal junkie, which we can definitely sympathize with that. We like that. Uh, but two, you said, you know, you want to fast track retirement. And, you know, the idea of becoming financially free is such a, a buzzword. It's on social media a lot with a lot of influencers and people who don't necessarily understand what that is. So kind of do you still have that timeline of trying to fast track retirement? And what does that actually look like to you? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, in classic fashion, I made an Excel model to, uh, to, to show other people and myself what that actually looked like um, in terms of like how much cash you'd actually have to squirrel away into passive investments as a limited partner to uh, reach a certain like passive income that would replace your expenses. Um, so that, that's the goal It's to be able to, you know, replace all of your expenses with, money that you don't have to work for. And so, um, you know, that, 
that is 100% the goal. Um, and then, you know, at once, once you get to that point, um, then you can think about like growing your net worth. Um, and the, it, what's interesting is you kind of have to start out with an equity strategy to get your first bag or like your first winnings, your first pot of gold before you can really uh, generate any significant passive income. And the conclusion of, um, of that Excel model that I did to figure this out is, um, you know, you're going to have to invest, you know, over like $125,000 for the next five years if you want to generate enough money to, uh, you know, have like $50,000 of expenses every year. Um, so that's, it's, you're going to have to put in, you know, probably like five to $600,000, um, you know, to, to really have enough passive income uh, to, to be worth it. Yeah. You, uh, on your LinkedIn bio, it, it mentioned that you were able to do that in six years. That's pretty, that's pretty quick. I feel like a lot of people, I mean, sure you can buy one property and technically have passive income, but there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that it's even profitable passive income. Um, so what did that six years look like in terms of, was it year three that you started feeling like you were close or was there one big deal that year six put you into where you were finally covering all your finances? Was it gradual? Was it instant? How did that look? Like? I mean, so far it seems like it was just smooth sailing the whole way, right? Yeah, just yeah. you were there and not no, here, but I'm sure that all, it was no. rougher seas, right? <laughs> we, give, give our listeners an idea of, I guess, some of the hardships that come along with building passive yeah. income because it, it is an instant and it yeah. takes a lot of work. So what I did is that I made my my way of generating significant income. I made that real estate. Most people would, you know, they'd start their own side hustle business, uh, operating business, or, you know, they'd use their, their W-2 income uh, to do it. You know, I decided that I was going to offer investments or securities to other people in exchange for fees. Um, and so like the, 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 way, the reason why I was able to do it in six years at a young age was because I was charging good fees uh for the service of helping people invest in real estate so like i made that my business and um you're asking for the the, the hurdles and getting that done like oh my god every single deal was just like a new set of problems and challenges and on, on like every single deal there were points where i thought the, the deal was going to fail and I would lose a ton of money um, and that my reputation would be gone. Um, and it's just like everything on my first sixplex, I had to apply to like 35 different banks to get accepted by one uh, for financing, like stuff like that. The, the, I had investors pull out at the very last second, like a few days before, uh, you know, the, like a week before closing when, you know, their funds were due and they're like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do this. And their investment is only $10,000, but like, I needed that money to get the deal done. And so I've scrambled. I've had to like, like call everyone I know have, you know, a, just like swallow my, my pride and, and, you know, walk around on the streets and go into bars, just like trying to meet random people to fund my deals. And uh, just like the, the wildest things, um, you know, I, I've, I've encountered a lot of, a lot of setbacks. Um, but again, going back to, you know, the, the military helped me, um, you know, address those and be able to move forward and persevere when, when things were bad. So that's, um, I'd say for anyone looking to, to make real estate, their business or be an active manager, just be prepared for like it being the most like difficult time consuming and like outrageous process. Um, I would, I would, if I had to do it again, 
I'd probably do it because I'm crazy. But um, <laughs> you know, for the average person, I would recommend uh, like starting off with like a high paying W two job that's like doesn't require a ton of hours so that you can moonlight and possibly daylight as well, like working on your side hustle while you're at the job. I would start some kind of side hustle that would uh, you know, bring you a significant amount of income. And then I, for real estate, just passively invest it, like find a good manager, you know, find a manager, Goldhawk Capital is a manager, um, find someone who can help you get into these deals and do all the work for you. Um, that's really like what my, the book is about. It's about like how to, um, like select a manager and everything that you really need to know to be a passive investor. Um, a few years ago, I actually wrote a book on everything you need to know to like invest in apartment buildings or invest in real estate. Um, and I never actually released it because I didn't get around to finishing it. But, um, you know, it's just for the average person, for 99% of people, don't, don't do it. It's not fun. It's, uh, it's way too much work and, and managing a property manager is not easy either. They lie, cheat, and steal from you. Um, they will, you know, do everything they can to make sure you don't get any money. And the, you know, it's just a lot of, uh, blocks, but yeah, yeah. I think it's a difference between like what's rational and what's reasonable. It's the best way I ever heard of it. You know, for most people, of course it's rational. It, it, you know, checks out on a spreadsheet that everyone could get in here, get into real estate, make all this money. You know, there's nothing super special about us. We're people too, but it's just not reasonable for everybody. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not reasonable at all. Um, I mean, just like dealing with like the property manager for, for example, you know, every single month, um, for at least the first few years, we would find issues on the, like, the, the monthly statement that was like, they were clearly stealing from us. And then I would call them and be like, Hey, what's going on? They'd be like, if you don't like how things are done, find someone else. And it's like, just, yeah, so rude. And, um, you know, just so many issues dealing with uh, vacancy and negotiating with contractors who are 3000 miles away and who you know show up and get angry at your job site and destroy the place. It's, uh, there's just a lot of headaches that you have to deal with. And uh, I'd say for most people, it's not worth it. Um, find someone like me who's willing to do the work. <laughs> yeah. That's, like a, it. that's great. We had a developer on the podcast a, a couple months ago now, but he, he said that when, when you're in the world of real estate and real estate development, you, you wake up every day and it's, okay, what problems do I have to solve? It's, it's never, people think, oh, you're a real estate investor. That means you wake up and just do whatever you want. No, it's, I wake up and figure out what problems have been created in the, in the six hours I was asleep or less. And um, it's, it sounds like you have a pretty good hold on being able to wake up and at least react um, in the best way possible. And that's really all it takes, but not everyone can can do that. Yeah, I apologize for the noises in the background. There's no, no, not a problem at all. <laughs> this is this has been extremely insightful, and um, I think if you're ready, we can hop into the blitz round. If there's yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. Okay, perfect. Well, the first one is, and we we, we love this one. But what book has had the biggest impact on your career? Definitely Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was, and I read that at a young age and obviously everybody says that book, but it's just, uh, you know, it's the mindset. It, it really, uh, frames things in a way that, uh, like tells you what you need to become wealthy one day. Yep. Love it. Great book. Um, what's one activity hobby that helps you decompress after a long day of solving all those problems you've listed off? 
Well, uh, I recently got into bowling, um, and I don't get to go very often, but uh, I, I figured out uh, – I recently figured out how to do the hook. Because uh, so, I was always just a straight bowler. Uh-huh. Now I can, like, actually, like, roll it over, and uh, that's pretty cool. Um, I, I go to the gym, uh, try to go every day, and then um, I like hiking as well. Oh. That's awesome. Go. Figuring out the spin on bowling, I bet that unlocked a whole new passion for the sport. It's That's just awesome. fun. Yeah. yeah, and I started watching all these YouTube videos. That, like, You know me, I go down the rabbit hole of like, like getting excited about something, and then yep. I'm like, I'm going to be a PBA pro, and like, like uh-huh. rolled, my, rolled my first like 220 game or something and got really excited and, and then never did it again. So. That, that's awesome. And uh, yeah. we appreciate you being open about your, your YouTube education. We're also educated by YouTube. We we're big okay. proponents of that. Yeah. So we love hearing that a lot of our other podcast guests are a little older, so they're not always in tune with the YouTube. And sure. I always like to stress, you can learn almost anything on YouTube, skip the Google search, go straight to YouTube and you're good. And, um, Agreed. Our last question. Yeah, our last question would be, if business meetings had a walk-up song, what would yours be? Uh, Sharp Dressed Man. ZZ Top. There you go. Hey, that's a there great you go. one. I like it. Yeah, well, this has been great, Elijah. Is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners where they can find you, how they can support you? Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn right now, so uh, find me on LinkedIn. Add me. It's uh, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Elijah W. Brown. Uh, feel free to subscribe to my, my newsletter or shoot me a direct message there. Um, happy to, to jump on a call with, with anybody. Awesome. And we'll have those links in the description for, for listeners looking to get in touch with Elijah. Thank you, Elijah. This appreciate it, Elijah. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Hey guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at htbs at gillisanteam.com. Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>